magnificent. Christopher Nolan's three-hour historical biopic Oppenheimer is a gorgeously photographed, brilliantly acted, masterfully edited, and thoroughly engrossing epic that instantly takes its place among the finest films of this decade. <laughs> Richard Roper of Chicago sometimes giving it up for Oppenheimer. It is our featured review this week. We got two big ones, though. Barbie is the other one. Just a massive weekend at the box office as I was able to see both of those movies, plus our wild card this week. No old movies, but wild card is Oscar De La Hoya. Yeah, one of the greatest boxers ever, and certainly a guy I've been a fan of for a long time. He's got a new two-part documentary about his life premiering on HBO tonight. Part one is tonight, which is Monday we're recording, and Tuesday is part two. I don't know if Cody's going to get this out tomorrow. If it's up tomorrow, you'll have already seen part one. You can watch part two again. Both of those are available on HBO and on Max. Oscar is always very candid, very interesting, coming to terms with a lot of his addictions in life, and he really talks about it at length, not only in the interview, but also in the documentary. So I encourage you checking it out, all about the Golden Boy. Speaking of Golden Boys, though, we're going to dive right into the movies, which is uh, the names you could give right now to think to both of these people. The Golden Girl would be Greta Gerwig, and the Golden Guy would be Christopher Nolan. Before we dive into the movies themselves, just a thought on the box office and just how massive this was this week and how everybody seemingly went to the movies. I had said last week that the modest prediction was Barbie would open at $100 million and the modest prediction was Oppenheimer at $50 million. Instead, Barbie, which has an estimated production budget of $145 million and a marketing campaign of $150, so $300 million, they're into this thing. Gigantic numbers, I believe, grossed 160 million dollars this weekend, and 182—that's 160 domestic, 182 foreign gross as well. I don't think the foreign numbers are as uh, potent for a movie like this. That's more like action movies. And Oppenheimer, again, I went conservative budget at 50 million dollars. The budget, the numbers coming in right now at 80 million dollars opening weekend. That's staggering for a three-hour film, which is a historical epic about a guy who built the atomic bomb 80 years ago. Like that's gigantic numbers and really speaks to the power of Christopher Nolan and the fact that people still love going to the movies. They want to see movies in movie theaters, especially when they're uh, supersized scale like these films. That budget, I believe, is $100 million. I don't know his marketing costs. Foreign budget came in about 93 was the box office gross. But bottom line is this, huge numbers for both of these movies. To be able to see Barbie, $160 million opening weekend domestic and $80 million Oppenheimer domestic, great news if you love going to the movies. So that's the first and foremost aspect of this. I'm curious to see how they hold up the last Legs on them both, but massive numbers there. Again, if you enjoyed previous episodes of Cinephile, as always, you can check them out. Please go to Apple Podcasts, subscribe, rate, and review. And thanks again to our man, Nat Segaloff, talking about The Exorcist Legacy. Prior to seeing Oppenheimer, there's a trailer for the new Exorcist movie coming out in October. The great David Gordon Green is directing that. So Exorcist all over the place, 50th anniversary. I still just love the fact, I wish we had more buzz here on social media. How great was that Billy Friedkin clip? I immediately sent to everybody. <laughs> I don't give a flying fuck through a rolling donut with Al Pacino. That thinks. was great. It was fantastic. That's incredible. That was the best part of the interview. I mean, it's, <laughs> that was fantastic. Billy Friedkin. Oh, and they sat next to each other, but but they were not facing each other. Like, Nat, you should have been like, Al, look, it's Billy. Billy, it's Al. Remember what he said about the rolling donut? I want, I want to get in his face right now. All right, let's talk Oppenheimer. Let's do this. So the whole question is this. First off, the whole the aspect of Barbenheimer is people seeing it on the same day, which you really don't understand, Cody. I, I mean, when you're going to get two gigantic movies like this, why would you, pardon the vulgarity, shoot your load in one sitting? Like, why wouldn't you just see one movie on one day and one movie the next day? Especially these two films are just so divergent. I get it if you were like, oh, there's a new Spider-Man movie and like a new, uh, I don't know, and any other Marvel movie, you go, I, right. I want to get my superhero vibe. But Barbie... Is a movie aimed at tweens, and it's about a plastic doll come to life in her life. 
And Oppenheimer is a three-hour historical epic. Why on the earth would you want to watch both those movies together? I don't get it. Do you go Oppenheimer first? Like, what do you got it? Like, well, you can't go saying, the long. No, I, there's no way. I think if you if you're gonna do it, which I did not, we'll get into it in a second. I think you do Barbie first because that's light and frilly. And then you get into Oppenheimer. But I think either way, it's a mistake. A little late afternoon nap during Oppenheimer if you're an old person. <laughs> I guess that would be the thought. But I, I don't really understand people doing both. But hey, power to you. Maybe you don't have kids. You just want to get after it. I, I totally understand. I mean, maybe it's the old school. You know, Chris Young was joking to me, MLB Network analyst. You know, the old school move when we were all 14, you go in and get a ticket for one movie. Then you, of course, oh. go in the other movie theater. So if that's yeah. what you're doing, I'm actually going to support that. If, if you're like, you know what, Barbenheimer, because I want to get two for the price of one, no problem. Considering the price of tickets these days, as much as I support going for the movies, I also support a little bit of rascally behavior, okay? We've lost that with the assigned seating. Yeah. I guess only for popular movies, you can't really do it. If it's not a popular Correct. movie, you can still kind of sneak into a... 100%. Nothing yeah. wrong. Nothing wrong. I, listen, I don't like sneaking in. I don't wish you paying nothing. To me, that would be wrong. But two for the price of one? Hmm. Considering price of tickets is like $14, I don't want to use issue with that. Go ahead. It's a, it's a part of adolescence, part of our youth. So maybe if that's how you did Barbenheimer, I get it. But I did not. So only kids. You're only okay with kids doing it. An adult. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, if an adult's doing that, I'm like, come on. Come on. If, Mike if, Ryan, I, if Mike Ryan is sneaking into both, like, you're, you're, yes, you don't want yes. that. I would definitely call the flag. I would throw what if he has one kid? What if it's an adult and with a kid? No, got to pay for one. Whatever, we're getting bogged down. Yeah, no, I Continue. still think. Yeah, I mean, I still think if, if you're with a kid, fine. But no, no, if, it's an, if you're a kid, it's okay. Adult, not allowed. So I'm gonna say 35 plus. You, you <laughs> missed. It. If it was a couple years ago, and you did it. I'm like, ah, oh, good for you, Cody. You're like 34. Now you're like 36. My God, Cody, you can't do that. Right? <laughs> so I don't want to do both in the same day. I'm working Friday. Thursday, I was working a double. So I thought about seeing it Thursday night opening night, which would have been a terrible mistake because I would have been exhausted. I mean, th this is the kind of way that demands your attention. And the whole thing is I would have seen Oppenheimer first. And yet, my old buddy Rob Lemley, ESPN producing legend, all-time great guy, listens to every episode of Cinephile. We saw Dunkirk together. So he wants to recreate the Nolan magic. And let's go see it together. As you know, and as everyone knows listening to this podcast, I never see movies with people. I see it by myself yeah. or I see it with my family. So now I have to worry about somebody else's schedule. So I was like, all right, well, uh, you know, Thursday we can do the late show, but I'm like, hey, I'm working at Doubles, okay, Friday. Yeah. And, and again, if you work ESPN, your energy is already off for this. You could, I could just tell by your energy, you didn't really want to go to the movie with this guy. <laughs> no, that's not well, true. not that you Lime's didn't want to, to no, 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 not that you didn't want yeah. to, but you were just worried about the scheduling. You're yes. like, all right, when are we going? What's that's time? a fair point. It, it is adding a wrinkle that I would normally not have. You are correct in that. Normally, I just go, hey, I tell my wife, I'll be back in three hours, no problem. <laughs> now, now that now there's some scheduling challenges. You are right about that. <laughs> so Saturday I'm off and I'm like, well, Saturday would have been the easiest. I'll go see a noon show. Again, I'm always up with the kids, run around a little bit, go to the park. I see a movie. We come back. We go whatever. All good. He's going to work Saturday. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm working WNBM. Like, <laughs> so my, now my wife doesn't really want to go see Barbie. So I'm like, you know what? I, I, I can't believe this, but I'm going to see Barbie before Oppenheimer because she wants to go see it. I'm like, no problem. And I do need to see it for the podcast. And she wants to invite a couple other couples. I'm like, all right. So I went last Tuesday to the movie theater. I know my brother always finds it amusing. I actually go to the theater, but no, I got to go to the theater. And I bought tickets for me and Lem for Sunday, 6.30 p.m. IMAX. At that point already, Cody, it was like 70% sold out. I go, this is like a Sunday night show. Yeah. I'm working the Hall of Fame. Congrats to Fred McGriff, Scott Rowland in the Hall of Fame. As soon as they're done, I'm going to roll right to the movie. 6.30 IMAX. Dogs. Yeah, I love, love the crime dog. So that means Saturday Barbie. Now, my wife's kind of worried because like, well, my friends are saying it's selling out. I go, no, my local theater in Ridgewood, no way. The theater me and Lem went to in Paramus uh, by the mall there. Might sell out this one. There's no chance. But sure enough, I went on the Friday, the day before, to buy the tickets in person. And he goes, well, the show tonight sold out. I'm like, really? I, I've never seen a movie sell out here in Ridgewood in four years. He's like, 740 is sold out, sir. The 5 o'clock close is selling out. I go, well, no problem. We're back. How's, 
Yeah, I go, how's the 215 looking tomorrow? He's like, oh, no problem. I mean, it was maybe at that point, 30% fog. I'll get six tickets, 87.50 for Barbie. To get in the mood, I had a pink golf shirt on. Again, I'm meeting my wife's friends. It's two other couples. <laughs> so pink golf shirt. She's like, oh, okay. And, then I, and I also want pink shorts. She goes, no, no, it's too much. I go, hang on a second. Yeah. We're going to see Barbie. I'm going to wear all pink. It's because I'll take a picture. I'll post it. And you're not posting to social. I'm not doing this for social. I'm doing this for the event. It's, it's Barbie. I'm wearing pink. But let's not make a deal about it. But I'm wearing all pink. I'm wearing more pink than she is, quite frankly. And her <laughs> friends are showing up like, oh, wow, like, wearing the pink. I'm like, yeah, we're going to see Barbie. What else would I be wearing? Were they happy with the pink or a little uh, weirded out by the pink? Neither. I think just comment like, oh, wearing the pink for the Barbie. Like, yeah, okay. like, yep. Just, just, just an observation, like not passing judgment, but not in, not in praise of it either. It's kind of like you're wearing pink. I'm like, yeah, I'm like, okay. Where we going? Nice meeting you. I'm like, yeah, sure thing. You guys want snacks, milk duds, and popcorn, whatever? Okay. So we get there, and one of the first things I look around, I'm like, wow. Because like, you're going into the movie thinking, oh, my God, Barbie, this is going to be a big movie event. Greta Gerwig's this great director. She's done Lady Bird, Little Women, Margot Robbie, previous guest on Cinephile, by the way. You can go listen to the Margot Robbie interview. She's very, very nice. It was when she was promoting I, Tanya, sports movie. So ESPN branding had some help, but very sweet. This is pre-Zoom, so I couldn't see her, so I can't get into too many details, but very nice on the phone. Name checked me. Never talked to Ryan Gosling before, fellow Canadian. He is from Ontario, but I'm excited to see him as well. But when I sat in the theater, that was the moment I go, I, what, what, what's going on here? Like, I was so fired up. Like, oh, yeah, Barbie, let's go. And I'm like, no, no, this is like a bunch of 16-year-old girls. Like, what? This movie's not going to be any good. Like, Cody's right. Like, what? This isn't like, no. Like, who yeah. are you? You're a 44-year-old man. In wearing, what all, wearing pink shorts and a pink yeah, shirt. Pink shirt and pink shorts. You're a 44-year-old man. And you actually think like this movie's that you're going to like it? Like, it might be a good movie, but you're not going to like it. You you like Goodfellas. Like, you're not going to like yeah. Barbie. What the hell are you doing? And I'm like, yeah, I, I don't know. Well, let's, let's see how it goes. And and sure enough, out of the gate, I'm like, I'm not going to like this movie. It's about a doll. It's about yeah. a doll that little girls play <laughs> I with. I love this moment of yeah. like, what am I doing right now? Right, the moment of self-awareness. I'm like, I have to see the movie anyways because of Cinephile. But I'm like, there's no chance I'm going to actually like this movie, even with this pedigree involved. So I start watching, okay, Barbie's this real-life doll. Uh-huh, okay, interesting. And so she's living in Barbie land, which is where all the other dolls are. And, you know, it's kind of silly the way her life is. You know, she she drinks the cup of coffee in the morning but nothing comes out of it you know she takes her shower but no water comes out nothing messes her up and there's all these barbies everywhere so she walks down the street hi barbie hi barbie hi barbie hi barbie they do this whole thing and she is stereotypical barbie but there's like you know athletic barbie there's black barbie all these barbies everywhere and they're all just saying hi to each other okay and she just goes about her day looking beautiful looking great and then all of a sudden she goes to the beach of course you see ken ken's got his eight pack my man gosling please blonde hair looking fit but he's kind of kind of a dork like oh, the ken's whole mood and by the way, Helen Mirren is the narrator. Fantastic. Would have liked more of Helen Mirren. I should mention actually the opening. The first image, which I did think was hilarious, a play on 2001, the great Stanley Kubrick movie, which started out, you remember that great shot of the, you know, the apes and they start smashing everything. This time it's Margot Robbie as Barbie watching a little kid playing with dolls. And then she takes her Barbie and starts smashing other dolls. And they've got that great music, of course, from 2001. So I'm like, oh, pretty clever opening. What well, good way to start the movie. Then we get to Barbie land. Anyway, she sees Ken, sees the guys, the beats. They're all named Ken. Hey, Ken. Hey, Ken. And as the narrator tells us, Ken's day is only impacted by how Barbie treats him. If Barbie's nice to him, Ken has a good day. Otherwise, Ken's having a bad day. But Ken's there at the beach. He loves to go to the beach or he hangs out, whatever. So the next day, Barbie wakes up and all of a sudden something's gone wrong. So the water's not coming out of the shower. The coffee's not working. The water actually comes out. She's cold. Oh, my God. There actually is water in the coffee. Like, oh, this is weird. Uh, she says hi to everybody. Hi, Barbie. And she slips and falls. Okay, something's going on here. Weird. And the most disconcerting thing, which is amusing, is normally her feet are always like heels up. Yeah, Instead, her heels this, are down. Yeah. What's going on? What is the problem? 
So she goes to Kate McKinnon, who shows up in a very amusing cameo, just looking haggard. They call her Weird Barbie because she is Weird Barbie, just kind of funny looking, all teeth and fangs and stuff, hairs all messed up, crazy clothing. And she's like, yeah, well, we've got a problem here. You need to go to the real world and figure out who is playing with Barbie because you know there's this hex and voodoo, blah, 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 whatever. You've got to go there. So she's like, either you can live your life here in Barbie land or you can go figure out what's going on. And she's like, okay, I'll, I'll just stay here. She's like, no, that's not what I was hoping you were going to say. You have to go to the real world. She's like, what? She's like, no, you have to go to the real world. She's like, I don't want to. Like, you have to go to the real world. Figure out the real world. So now Barbie goes to the real world. She gets in her car. She says goodbye to everybody. We're going to fix this. We're going to figure out what's going on. Ken jumps in the car, unbeknownst to her. Oh, my God. Terrifies her. Ken wants to go along for the ride. So you go to the real world. And, and up until this, I, I, as I'm saying, I'm enjoying the movie. I think it's light. I think it's frilly. Fabulous production design. Like, it's all pink everywhere. Like I. Again, $145 million budget. They spent this money wisely because it looks like its own universe, which I appreciate. Any movie that puts me in a different world. Obviously, the wardrobe very good. And so, you know, they're wearing like full need wear to go rollerblading. And like the guys are kind of checking out Barbie and she's not used to this. She's kind of like, oh, okay, hi guys. But Ken's loving the attention. All of a sudden, guys look at him, a lot of gay men looking at him, good looking guy, eight back. He's like, all right, yeah, yeah. No, let's go. And then Barbie says, well, let's go to a construction site. Let's try to find some women there. And of course, it's all guys making content. She's like, I'm not really sure what you're saying, but just so you know, I don't have a vagina and he doesn't have a penis. And they're like, oh my God, what is going on here? He's like, oh, I stole this to her. So now they have to figure out what's happening in this reality. And she's trying to find it again. Who's playing with the Barbie? Who's messing up her whole world? And Ken's like, I gotta, I gotta figure out what's going here because I'm, I'm kind of enjoying this different world I'm in now. So he goes to the library and it was a really amusing sequence. He finds out what this world is all about, and he learns the word patriarchy. And he's like, this place is awesome. He's like, men all rule the world here. Like, patriarchy is awesome. And, and to him, patriarchy is literally riding horses, because he just sees books about cowboys and westerns. <laughs> so there's a really funny sequence where he goes to a bunch of different jobs. He's like, hi, I'm a man. I'd like a job. Like, I'm a white man. Like, I run the world. What, what yeah. do you need me to do? And, you know, he goes to try to sell cars. He goes to be like, there's a really funny sequence. Again, you see this in the trailer, so I'm not spoiling anything. But he's in the uh, hospital and he's like, yeah, I'd like to deliver a baby. And she's like, you can't. He's like, where's the doctor? She's like, I am the doctor. Like, no, you're not. You're a woman. Where's the guy? Where can I go? Oh, doctor, how are you? He's like, okay, great. I, I want to go deliver a baby because I'm a man. So he now has this great idea. He's like, oh, we, we can change things. So again, the other, another film, by the way, that I've seen this summer that has shades of Back to the Future. Of course, in Back to the Future, Biff Tannen, once he gets the sports almanac, goes back, bets and everything, and has an alternate 1985. Now, this story, you can see where it's going. Okay, Ken is going to take the ideas he's learned and try to change the world he's lived in. Eventually, Barbie finds America Ferreira. Uh, I remember her from what, Ugly Betty, I think was the show. Her and her daughter. Okay, she played, and she's like, oh my God, I love Barbie as a kid, blah, blah, blah. And she goes and meets Will Ferrell showing up in a cameo. Another SNL colleague, obviously, along with Kate McKinnon. So it's good to show Will Ferrell showing up. Easy paycheck. I'm going to play the head of Mattel. Evil, domineering, white man trying to run things. And he sees Barbie. He's like, oh, we're, oh my God, Barbie's in the loose. We're going to find Barbie. We're going to capture her, et cetera. Barbie figures it out. Margot Robbie takes off. Got a little bit of a chase sequence. America Ferrera takes her, saves her. We got to go back to Barbie land. I'm going to show you Barbie land. So my guy, I admire Barbie as I went. This is where it gets in the back to the future alternate universe. They go back and now the Barbie land has changed. Ken's are now ruling the world. Gosling has gone back, taught everybody, no, no, Ken's are in charge. All of a sudden at the beach, it's not just Barbie sunbathing. It's Barbie being bikinis and waitresses and serving all the men. And the boys are playing beach ball. Like, yeah, yeah. Look at them. They go, I love this world. The girl's like, I love this. I'm just serving men. This is so great. So, you know, Ken has always screwed everything up. And Barbie's like, I can't believe this. Now you're living in my mansion. He's like, yeah, I'm a man. I run things. I run the world. It's patriarchy. I have a horse. Here's how we're doing things now. Like, <laughs> like you treated me like crap for all those years. I'd be subservient to you. Now see how you like it. I have a so, horse. <laughs> yeah. So again, I, I think if you're just enjoying the movie on its surface, I think it's clever and it's funny and it's not just silly, I would say it's making points about society.
But then I found the second half, it started to get a little bit preachy. And I wouldn't use the word political, although I'll get to that in a second. I would find it a little bit ham handed. Like I never like movies in which they're telling me what's happening. I'd rather the characters demonstrate what's happening rather than you telling me, yeah. hey, women are now going to rule the world. We're going to take back things. I'm a feminist icon, et cetera. I'd rather you just be the feminist icon rather than explaining to me what is about to happen. And I think that's the mistake that Barbie starts to make. I'll mention the political thing. As I saw right away, apparently conservatives are losing their minds, which is oh, very it's, funny. It's the like biggest the, talking point, like, I'd say. The, is that, the right, you're right. Yeah. I think that is the biggest talk. Coming out of it, it's like, oh my God, I heard Sean Hannity is like saying it's too woke and uh, man-hating. And I'm like, well, listen, if you're seeing a movie called Barbie, let me guess who the villain's going to be. It's not going to be a woman. It's not going to be Barbie. Well, let me guess who the villain's going to be. Probably going to be guys. Probably going to be Ken and a bunch of these Kens. And that's where, again, I, I think the movie's still amusing, but to me, it just felt like I said, heavy-handed, a little bit preachy. Then you get ben, ben Shapiro, not happy. Yeah, I, I could see that. I was like, this definitely. I mean, I mean, I may turn on Fox News for the first time in a while just to see <laughs> what these guys are saying about Barbie because they're probably just losing their minds. Again, I don't want to spoil anything beyond that, but the Barbies figure out a way. Okay, how can we take back the world? Girls run the world. Let's get back from the Kens. And then the movie just gets kind of weird, which I appreciate. Greta Gerwig, you know, independent film director. She is making a movie for a mass audience, but let's just get weird. And you've got a couple of pretty funny musical sequences. You've got one crazy fight with the Kens. And again, it's working on parallels for society. You know, how does society in this example turn women against each other? Well, they, and as they say in the movie, they use women and their insecurities and turn them against each other. In this case, the Kens are preying on their own insecurities and turning against each other. So, Within the context of a movie, I suppose it works in finding Barbie a way to go back to Barbie land. But I could see how white men perhaps watching the movie are being sensitive. It's going, well, it's not our fault. We don't run the world. But I think America Ferreira has a really great monologue, which I just enjoyed. Again, I don't care if you're a man or a woman, what your beliefs are. I think it's really well delivered in which she talks about the challenges of being a woman in the world. And it's fantastic. She says, you know, you're supposed to be a mother, but you can't talk about your kids too much. You're supposed to be strong at work, but not too firm where people think that you're domineering. You have to be a good friend, but also be supportive of others. And it's a, it's an excellent speech. I thought it was really well written. I thought it was one of the best speeches of the movie. Greta Gerwig, by the way, co-wrote the script along with Noah Baumbach, her husband, who did Marriage Story. And I thought that was a really good example of showing what the troubles are of being a woman. Even that one sequence I mentioned of Gosling, when the guy says to me, he's like, I thought men don't run the world. He's like, well, they do, but we just have to be a little more quiet about it now. Like, that, that, <laughs> it's funny. Like, it, right. like, you can say that doors have opened for women or doors have opened for minorities. But yeah, of course, white men still have a leg up in the world as they have for many years. But I guess that got a little weird towards the end, but they took a few chances. Ultimately, as a movie, I'm giving it two and a half Maple Leafs. And that's what's saying that, again, I'm clearly not the target audience. I think people love the movie. Cinema Score, which ranks what audiences think, got an A. So people who are seeing Barbie are loving Barbie, which means it's going to get a lot of repeat business, which means get ready for another $150 million next weekend, which means get ready for Barbie 2. You know, that's going to happen in a couple of years because this kind of money that this movie's making is gigantic. But uh, I could definitely see it being polarizing. And again, for a guy like Chris Cody, most importantly, I can't imagine Cody enjoying Barbie. I would not recommend him to run it since movie. Watch it on streaming with your daughter at some point. Your wife will enjoy it. If you want to be a is good it okay hobby, for kids, my wife, my wife is going to see it with friends and my daughter yeah. wants to see it. And my wife is doing the old, I'll let you know after I see it kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I think she's a little young right now. I mean, it's it's PG-13. I mean, there's no nudity. It's probably a little bit of double entendres. Which probably, I mean, your daughter's probably pretty bright. She may not get the double entendres. She probably will miss it. Yeah. Yeah. No violence. Like, there's no violence at all. There's no, no profanity. So it's probably fine. It's, it's just, probably okay. But I mean, The dialogue is the only thing that's probably Correct. too confusing. If there's a line right? or two, a couple of jokes, whatever, she's not going to notice any of that stuff. But listen, as your a wife, movie... Your wife liked it? 
She did. She thought she she enjoyed it. She she had a similar approach to me. She actually made a really good point because I said she goes, it's kind of like Greece at one point with the musicals. I'm like, yep. And she goes, it was kind of like the Truman Show at one point because Barbie wants to escape her world and go into the real world. I'm like, that is a great call, honey. I will huh? use that on Cinephile. I did not even think of that. Truman well, Show. You didn't even use it. Now, now you can use it. Go ahead, yeah, use it. Jim Carrey, the best. So <laughs> uh, she enjoyed it. The girls enjoyed it. I, although I said to the other guys, I'm like, man, we got to go see like a Schwarzenegger movie now. Like that was two hours and I'm wearing all pink. Like, yeah, we need to go watch Face Off or like, you know, Mad Max. <laughs> Just go go watch something bloody and violent right now. But I like the idea of like the, the Gosling characters. Like, I have a horse. What do you mean? I'm a man. <laughs> like, it's a funny like. Yeah, th- th- there's definitely some moments that are clever and unique and, and enjoyable. Like I said, I, I appreciate any movie that's different and production design. And here's the big thing too. I love the fact it made so much movie because it's a rare time that like a non-superhero movie, an original movie made that much money. Now, I know it's IP, intellectual property. It's obviously based on a doll, a built-in audience. But the point is, there was no previous Barbie. This isn't like based on a, an adaptation of a book. It was, this was an original idea that Greta Gerwig had to sit down and go, okay, what are we doing with Barbie here? And the story behind it, Margot Robbie wanted to do it because she looks like Barbie. But she was like, I want somebody who's smart and different. I'm not, I'm not just going to make a movie which is a commercial for a toy. This isn't like go buy Barbies. This is like we're going to do something. And there's some funny cameos. Our man, Michael Sarah, who's coming on Cinephile next month, he shows up playing a character I believe was discontinued. He was like Ken's ambiguously gay friend. He shows up and gets at least a half a dozen funny lines. There's there's one like there's a pregnant Barbie, which I think was discontinued. So like they're taking a few jabs at Mattel as well. Like they're like, hey, okay, this is some of the stuff that they did along the years. Because I'm sure not every woman likes Barbies. Like you, you can argue feminist icon, but there's also people who say, no, Barbie's horrible. Like she's she she teaches little girls that they have to have you know, voluptuous figures and thin waists that look a certain way. They've all over the years tried to say, well, no, there's different Barbies, different incarnations. But yeah, I, I think it's also wrong to say every woman thinks Barbie's awesome. No, I think I think there's definitely women who do not like Barbie, what Barbie stands for. This movie's trying to cater to all of that. And, and again, like Margaret Robbie had said previously, this movie's either, it's going to be for people who love Barbie and hate Barbie. And I was like, eh, it's more for people who love Barbie. I think if you hate Barbie, you're probably going to hate this movie. It's not. <laughs> That's two and a half Maple Leafs. Valerie Complex, Deadline Hollywood Daily. Barbie recognizes its own surreal existence, a world where perfect plastic figures wrestle with humanistic imperfections. Rafer Guzman of Newsday. Barbie herself never quite emerges as a flesh and blood character. That may be the movie's fatal flaw. I would agree with that. She still seems like Margot Robbie, pristine princess, not like a true character. Emily Zemler of Observer. Somehow, director Greta Gerwig has struck a balance between unhinged whimsy, deep humanity, and comedic bliss. That's excessive. And Christy Puchko of Mashable, a summer movie that has more depth than you might expect and demands to be seen on the big screen to take in every ounce of all the incredible craftsmanship in front of and behind the camera. I do like seeing movies on the big screen. I would agree. Barbie's lots of, again, production design, excellent details. I have a follow-up first also that I forgot to ask you about this outing. So you're with a couple, couple, a few couples. You buy all the tickets. Yeah. Is this a situation where all the tickets are printed out for you or is this a scan code situation? Printed out. I bought them the day before and then I handed it to each of them. I go, here's your ticket. Here's your ticket. ticket." Are you the type of guy that I'm standing at the, with the person with all eight tickets or are you in the parking lot right before? Let me hand out individually. Here's each of your tickets. I walked in with all six tickets and then I just handed it to the guy. This is for all of us yeah i love that move i'm like that too i don't i don't trust anybody else i'll handle all the tickets i do that at sporting events i got it all follow me guys walk up to the front i got eight of us i'm not (laughs) a big i I don't like the big uh, like out here you go like here's yours here's yours yeah i got it it's a little look at me louie when you start handing it to each guy like i paid for the ticket i paid for your ticket like Like, i'm santa claus here here you go who needs a ticket you need one you need one this is the time of gift giving all right now we get to the main attraction here that was the undercard then we get to oppenheimer so I get to the theater right at 6.30. Lem's there waiting. Haven't seen him in four years. I'm like, let's go. I'm like, I got to eat dinner. I, I've been on the set all day. Let's go. Chicken tenders, nine bucks. Highlight of the entire weekend. 
as I'm waiting in line, guy looks over and goes, I didn't I'm like, how you doing, man? He's like, huge fan of Cinephile. I'm like, let's go. And I'm like, yes. you're about to see I'm like, you're about to see Oppenheimer. I'm like, dude, this is amazing. I'm like, I I, I should have got his name. I would have shouted him out, but I'm like, awesome. Thank you for supporting the pod. I'm gonna get some chicken tenders. I'm starving. Get the tenders. We're locked in. Seat F1. And you get a couple trailers. Killers of the Flower Moon. Can't wait, Scorsese. I was working with Joel Sherman of the New York Post yesterday on the baseball beat. So he had just seen Oppenheimer. And I was like, don't tell me anything. He's like, can I just say one thing? I go, no, don't tell me anything. I go, I know nothing about the movie. I just know it's been a guy named Oppenheimer. Rags texted me Saturday. He goes, dude, incredible. I go, I don't, don't tell me anything. Just tell me you liked it. And Joel's like, can I just say one thing? I go, sure. Because I saw a trailer for the new Scorsese movie. I'm like, yeah. He's like, looks terrible. I go, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> Moses, our pro- Moses, our producer, he goes, dude, you can't say that to Adnan. Adnan's like in the bag. I go, no, no. I go, that's a ridiculous statement, but whatever. I was really happy to see the trailer. The trailer's awesome. But also a good point he made was that when you see a certain movie, you're expecting trailers of a certain type. Meaning if you're seeing Oppenheimer, that's like a really movie savvy crowd. I'm not expecting a trailer for like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. The trailers for Killers of the Flower Moon, which again, that audience is going to see. If you're seeing Oppenheimer, you're probably going to see Marty's latest, Leo, De Niro, et cetera. But then there's also the trailer for The Exorcist, which I was like, hmm, kind of surprised at this trailer in here. But I'm just happy that there were trailers because it takes a few minutes for the tenders. My biggest fear was I'm going to walk into this movie. It's at 6.30. And somebody had said to me, there may not be trailers. I'm like, what? He's like, dude, I, I heard for Oppenheimer, like, no one may have made it like a mandate. Like, no, no trailers. Start the movie on time. I go, that's not going to happen. AMC will still push back. Thankfully, I was right. 6.30 movie. We were in at 6.38. Movie started 6.51. Nicole Kidman, great to be back in theaters. Okay, let's go. Three hours. <laughs> now, it's going to be an event. So thank God, phone is off. I'm locked in. And one thing about Christopher Nolan's movies are, it's an immersive visual experience. But he's not going to make it easy on you. He is not going to tell a conventional story. So I heard he's making a movie with Oppenheimer three-hour biography. I knew this is not going to be a beginning, middle, and end. He's going to tell his story at his own pace in his own Nolan-esque style. He is not a fan of linear storytelling. Okay, Memento will always be my favorite Christopher Nolan movie. I just think it's so impactful. It was so smart. It was so inventive. When I saw it in my life, I loved it. everything about that movie. He's not going to tell a traditional story. He's not going to go beginning, middle, and end. So Oppenheimer begins right away. Oh my God, what are we doing? It's in black and white. And Robert Downey Jr. looks like he's in a court setting. Not really sure what's happening right now. Somebody's on trial. Is he on trial? Not really sure. Okay, now we see Oppenheimer, Killian Murphy, haunted looking. Just apparently ate nothing but almonds for like a month straight. I'll have to double check that. Someone told me that I'm going to look this story up. They go, remember the machinist, Christian Bale? McKay, it was like 130 pounds. They go, apparently Killian Murphy's like, I'm going to be skinny as hell. The real Oppenheimer, which Rags did send me a podcast because you should listen to this. I go, no, no, I don't know anything. But it's good background. I go, I'll listen to it afterwards. I listened to 15 minutes of it as I was going to the movie theater. It did say he was incredibly skinny. So Killian Murphy was like, all right, chain smoking, and I'm going to be super skinny. High cheekbones, gaunt face, sunken eyes. I'm like, all right, this guy's been through some things. Again, he's apparently on trial. There's a tribunal. He's in a non-traditional court setting. Jason Clark, who I always love, he's great as Jerry West in uh, Winning Time, which is on HBO, coming back soon, season two. Jason Clark is a prosecutor. He's asking questions. But again, this is not a courtroom setting. This is like a very small room. There's like three people, including Tony Golden, speaking of character actors. Jason Clark is the attorney, and they're asking Oppenheimer questions. Then they're asking other people questions. So is this a court case? Is this an interview? Is this an interrogation? Not really sure. Let me go back to the beginning. Okay, now here is Oppenheimer. It seems like as a young man growing up, kind of nerdy, definitely very smart, but clearly not somebody who's got a lot going for him as far as anything with the ladies. Which brings us to Florence Pugh showing up. For all the people mentioning what a great cast this is, and it is an amazing cast, thankless role for Florence Pugh. <laughs> Wonderful actress. She shows up, first scene, they start floating topless. I'm like, well, kind of surprising because Nolan's movies rarely feature any nudity at all. Later on, there's a scene, he's completely naked, covering his private area. She is naked as well, 
They're having a conversation. She's covering her bottom area, to be clear. But again, topless, carrying on like a two-minute conversation. I'm like, okay, I, this is definitely gratuitous nudity from Christopher Nolan. He must have been like, all right, Oppenheimer, three hours, atomic bomb. I'm getting Florence Pugh. We're getting her naked for a couple of scenes. <laughs> for, for such a great director, it was definitely odd, which then gets to probably the biggest weakness of the movie is when Oppenheimer, again, is being interrogated, and his wife is now Emily Blunt. And they have a sequence where he's now completely naked. And Florence Pugh is naked on top of him. And he's talking about his affair. And I'm like, okay, this should have been edited. Like, this this just looks preposterous. He's in a room with a bunch of clothed men and his wife. And he's naked. And his wife is on top. His girlfriend, excuse me, at the time is on top. I'm like, oh, this is a ridiculous scene. Having said that, most of the cast does get roles that acquits them well. But I did feel for Florence Pugh. I feel like that was a bait and switch. She's like, oh, my God, I'm in a Christopher Nolan movie. What am I going to do? I'm going to be naked and just hop on Killian Murphy. Okay, Mm, not great. (laughs) Back to the nonlinear narrative, the tribunal involving Oppenheimer. We now see it's not only him. Others are also being investigated. Who's being investigated? Matt Damon. What's Matt Damon's character all about? Apparently, he's a, a military man. Okay, interesting. What's he got to say about Oppenheimer? And now, as the story becomes, again, antithetical to what you're expecting, you start to get a sense of what's going on. He shoots between black and white and color, which he's done before. He did that on Memento. And in that movie, you know, the color sequences were all set in reverse order. The black and white was in chronological order. This time what he's doing is in color, it's all from Oppenheimer's point of view, Killian Murphy. The black and white sequences are from an objective point of view, third person narration. So that's why we're seeing Downey in those court cases and other people speaking about Oppenheimer. It's done from a more objective perspective. And then we get to probably an hour into the movie, we get to really the story gets to really narrative thrust. At this point, all we know is he's clearly a bit of a womanizer, very smart guy, brilliant scientist, working in physics, et cetera. And now he gets an offer he can't refuse. Matt Damon shows up as Leslie Groves. Damon playing a very bluff and blunt character has said he was looking to retire from acting for a little bit, take a break. And then Nolan showed up because he want to make this movie. He's like, all right, I'm doing it. And that scene is terrific because essentially he tells <laughs> Oppenheimer, Hey, all you scientists are arrogant, egotistical. I don't have time for any of you guys. Well, we got a problem here. We're at war with the Nazis, and the Nazis are going to build the atomic bomb unless we beat them to it. And you're the man for the job. You're smart enough, and I don't particularly like you. Everyone says you're a real pain in the ass, but you're brilliant. So I want you to get you and your team of scientists, and we're racing against the clock right now. There's nothing more than the sake of humanity here at stake. We got to build the bomb before the Nazis do, period. And you're the guy to do it, even though I can tell you're just a antisocial, creepy-looking dude who's a really smart guy. <laughs> Go get your people. Okay, I'm going to need to build something. What are you going to do? He's like, I'm going to build a little place in Los Alamos, New Mexico. As I said before here on the podcast, still got to get to Santa Fe one day. The sunsets <laughs> will blow your mind. Uh, especially in IMAX, by the way, which in case you're wondering how I saw the format, I did see it on IMAX, $24 for the ticket. Of course, I played for Lem's ticket as well, and I bought his junior mints, and I bought my own chicken tenders. So we're there watching the movie. And I'm like, New Mexico looks fantastic. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm all in on this. And he goes through and builds up his own town. Shades of Asteroid City, where Wes Anderson built his own town. Here he's building a town. All the scientists, he goes, they have to bring their families, wives, children. We're going to work on the atomic bomb. We're racing around the clock. Now the movie starts to take off. I mean, now you're just, you're in it. Like, oh my God, what's going to happen next? What's going to happen next? These guys are just grinding it out. Again, race against the clock. The Nazis, this is the free world here at large. And... Again, he's still cutting back and forth. Something happens in the future. What happens to Oppenheimer? I'm not sure. Is he is he on trial? He's clearly being investigated. He's clearly being interrogated. But what for? What exactly do you do? At this point, he seems heroic. He's trying to help America. He's trying to help society at large. And this is where Nolan, again, is such a showman. He starts to build up and ante up the stakes. And when he's got that narrative propulsion, it's tough to top him as a director. And you get to the scene where, all right, we're going to build the atomic bomb. 
And you can, it, it's about as gripping as any moment in a movie theater. You're just sitting there white knuckling the whole time. You see the countdown, 10, 9, 8, and everyone's just watching, right? Soldiers are down. They've got special eyewear. Oppenheimer's watching. And he doesn't come across as someone who's bloodthirsty. You know, he doesn't feel like the atomic bomb is something that we need to kill people and eradicate those damn Nazis. The feeling is more one of curiosity. I think he's just incredibly ambitious. I think he's somebody who's very smart, who's very gifted, who sees what is at his disposal and wants to just use his power to see what he can possibly do. Somebody who is innately curious, but also has the tools, like I said, at their disposal to carry out their ambitions. Nolan makes the very smart move uh, for a movie that's got so much sound. Again, you're watching an IMAX. That's when he pulls away. And it's a really smart move that, you know, you're seeing the bomb erupt and the flames are just going, but he removes the sound. Skillful move. It's been done a few times by obviously very smart directors. Coppola, very famously, Godfather 3, the scene where Sofia Coppola murdered his daughter and Pacino lets up this primal scream. Coppola takes out the sound. So you just see Pacino like, you know, screaming yeah, for 10 yeah, seconds. Yeah. Then you bring in the sound. So similarly with Oppenheimer, I'm like, all right, Nolan was smart. Rather than give you like, how can I possibly replicate the sound of an atomic bomb or right. remove the sound? And it's, the, it's just, you just see the images of people watching it, Damon. Killing Murphy, et cetera. And it's just, it's, just, it, it reminded me, of, and this is the highest combo I can play, that great scene in There Will Be Blood, the first time that Daniel Plainview gets the oil. And he's like, oh my God, there's an ocean of oil underneath our feet. And the score is just incredible, just pounding the entire time. I, I think the score might be the entire movie. It's very rare, especially in those courtroom sequences. You know, normally you wouldn't have that, but the score is just always on the edge, just punching you in the face. At times it may be, it's a little bit too much, but it's there. Hoyt Van Hoytema, of course, his longtime cinematographer, again, does an incredible job. And now you see what's at their disposal. And Damon's giving them the attaboy, like, all right, buddy, we got it. We got the atomic bomb. Let's go to war. And from there, you see what happens. The third act is where things are then going to get interesting. And again, the only thing I heard is people say, listen, the first two acts are outstanding. The third act, it slows down a little bit. It does slow down a little bit, but I didn't think it was a weakness of the movie. I, I think it's tough, first of all, to top an atomic bomb. How the hell are you going to top that? Like, dude, we just built an atomic bomb. What else you got for me? But I thought what he did is smart. He then kind of brings you up to date. Why was I going back and forth? What is this really all about? What's the story that I'm trying to tell you? And then you get Robert Downey Jr.'s character really coming into full focus. Again, David is playing Leslie Groves, who is the military man. Jason Clark is Roger Robb, the defense attorney, excuse me, the prosecuting attorney. Kenneth Branagh, by the way, shows up a couple scenes. Hey, he plays Niels Bohr. But Downey's character is interesting. Louis Strauss. So who is Strauss? Strauss was the one who was trying to requisition Oppenheimer to work for him. And he's very upset because he thought that Oppenheimer would work for him. He didn't. And Oppenheimer has this interesting relationship with Albert Einstein. Yes, Albert Einstein is in the movie, which I wasn't sure he'd be there, but there is Albert Einstein, played very well in the movie. And he's got this own relationship with Oppenheimer as well. And this great blurb I read this morning, I didn't want to read any reviews before, but I read today, Matt Zoller-Seiss, who's a great critic, former guest on Cinefile. He co-wrote the book on The Sopranos. He said, and this is specifically for our audience, as you know, I recently reviewed Amadeus, which I had never seen. And he said, Strauss's character is like Salieri, F. Murray Abraham's character to Oppenheimer's Mozart. I'm like, yes, great reference that he makes. Congrats to Matt, because Strauss is the one who's got this jealousy and this vindictiveness against Oppenheimer. Why exactly? The movie makes that clear. He also feels he's brilliant. He's a chemist, et cetera. So the movie ends on that note as they, they kind of wrap up the fact that what is Oppenheimer being investigated for? What is the tribunal involving Downey? And you've got just a slew of great actors showing up just for the chance to work with Christopher Nolan. Like, it's remarkable to think you've got Rami Malek, who's a best actor winner. Again, I found Bohemian Rhapsody highly overrated, but he did win an Oscar. He shows up for one scene. Casey Affleck, who won an Oscar for a great movie, Manchester by the Sea. He shows up for one scene. And then playing Harry S. Truman, 
when Oppenheimer goes to see the U.S. president is Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman showing up for one scene as Truman. And as my buddy Lem said to me, he goes, how many people have played Churchill and Harry Truman? I'm like, Gary Oldman, unbelievable. Drowning under a sea of latex. And he gives no uh, a really kind of chilling cameo there as well. Ultimately, it's a really immersive movie. Um, Joel had said to me, he goes, I think it's kind of like a beautiful mind cross with JFK. I don't necessarily a beautiful mind part because it's not about mental illness. Yes, it's about a very smart guy, but definitely Shades of JFK, which is a huge compliment. I mean, that's a brilliant movie by Oliver Stone. And this movie definitely feels like it's inspired by those early 90s Oliver Stone movies, which are about the investigative process, trying to learn the truth, trying to uncover more. But ultimately, it's a great film, and it's one of the best films of the year. And it's something that only Christopher Nolan could make. It's a movie which is, again, a character study. It's very immersive, but it's also about American history. And again, I'm not going to spoil the ending and what happens at the tribunal of the interrogation. You can go look that up and see what, you, what happened to the real Oppenheimer. But what's amazing about that movie is when the final credits roll, you've learned not only about this character, you've learned about this really unique time in American history, but you've seen why it has parallels to today. And why did he even want to make this movie in the first place? Nolan himself credits Robert Pattinson, who has unbelievable hair. When they made Tenet together at the Tenet rap party, Pattinson up to him and goes, here's a book for you. And it's all the speeches of Robert Oppenheimer from the 1950s. And he goes, you'll really enjoy this. And sure enough, Christopher Nolan goes, dude, I'm making a movie with Oppenheimer. So Pattinson was the one who inspired him. Because once you see the movie, you see why with the themes of weapons of mass destruction, nuclear warfare. And again, once, once I mean, we all know what happened. Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and the, the horrible. They estimate up to 200,000 people lost their lives here. And what kind of toll does that take on Oppenheimer himself? You're... Are you a hero because you were being asked by your government to develop a weapon to take down the Nazis? Or are you, in fact, a villain because you created this horrible yeah. contraption which murdered hundreds of thousands of people, genocide, and has now ramped up nuclear warfare, hydrogen bombs, et cetera? Like it's, it's a fascinating conversation that you can have. And Oppenheimer clearly had in his own head. And that's what the movie is very subjective in, in terms of the way he's seeing things. Again, very Oliver Stone-like in terms of him seeing things and, you know, He's kind of witnessing the destruction happen to Americans. He's having these kind of flashbacks of what's happening. It's, it's really skillfully done. Ultimately, it's a great movie. And the, the highest compliment I can pay is this. Some of Nolan's movies, as great a director as he is, like Tenet, I don't think worked very well. And I don't like a movie where someone goes, well, you have to see it at least twice. Why can't you make a movie once? <laughs> like, I want, you know, when I watch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, me and Cody and Cody's parents, we all love it once. The second yep. time I watch it, I'll like it even more. But I should be able to watch the movie once and enjoy it. Right. I don't like it anytime I see a movie, they go, well, you really have to see it twice. Well, how about the filmmaker makes it easy enough for me to understand? And that's my criticism of Nolan. Sometimes he's too smart for his own good. Like, you can make something that's so smart and so cerebral, but if it's not accessible, if a mainstream audience can't get it in one sitting, then that's on you. That's not on me. Here's the gift of Oppenheimer. You watch it, you understand it, you appreciate it, but you can't wait to watch it again because yeah. it's so densely plotted. It's so intricate. The dialogue, like now I have to go read up on Oppenheimer. I have to listen to podcasts to find out more and then go back and say, okay, now I know who that character is. Now I know who that person is. I understand what that person's motivations were. That could be accurate. That isn't, it's an incredible achievement and it really yeah. is a remarkable movie. And I recommend everyone to go see it in theaters. I'm giving it four Maple Leafs. Some more blurbs for you. Ty Burr. Nolan has set up to make a moral epic. He succeeds for the most part. A rally for the first two thirds of Oppenheimer, which contains some of the finest, most galvanizing movie making of his career. That's my man, Ty Burr. James Bardinelli of Real Views. Despite being overlong and unevenly paced, Oppenheimer contains moments of greatness and features one of the most compelling lead performances by Killian Murphy in recent memory. There's no question he's going to get nominated for Best Actor, and I would think he's the favorite right now to win Best Actor, but I hope it's going to be Leo for Killers of the Flower Moon. 
What I can say for sure is that Oppenheimer far too often feels like a three-hour Wikipedia entry than a compelling movie. Odie Henderson of Boston Globe, a rare dissenting opinion. In case you're wondering what the critics overall say, 89% for uh, Barbie, 94% for Oppenheimer, which is one of the best-reviewed movies of his career. It's an incredible movie. It's about potentially terrible people, but it's also very important people as well. And it depends through the lens which you witness them. You'll have to come to your own conclusions. Cody, is there any chance you're going to go see Oppenheimer? I'm in. You have me intrigued with both of these. Uh, I was definitely gonna see Oppenheimer, uh, Barbie, because my wife's got a date night with girls planned out. So I'm like trying to figure out a setting where I would go. Because if I'm not going with my wife, I'm not sure I'm gonna just gonna go out and see that by myself. Right. I'll probably see Barbie when it's on demand yes. eventually. But I, Oppenheimer, I want to go see. But really, all I was thinking that entire Oppenheimer review is: Are you the type that offers Joel? one of your tenders and fries or is it just like i bought these for me you have your candy like i'm not offering you anything right right so for lunch i'm trying to do the 12 and 8 intermittent fasting so i'd eaten lunch at noon what did i have at noon it wasn't a very big meal i think we had leftover pizza I had a couple pizza pizza and then i had some watermelon i love watermelon. i get watermelon every day oh, i love it went to work so i got there at 6 30. joel sherman i was in the studio with lem was my buddy i watched the movie my bad my bad it's okay so to lem i bought the tenders and i said do you want anything because i want candy junior mints i got it that's yours uh, I did offer him the tenders. I walked in and I was I hadn't eaten in five hours. I, I turned a tenner. He was on fine. Okay. I would have, I would have let the him offer. The yeah. Was it the offer? Like, would you have been disappointed if he took? No, a no, no. It was four tenders. They looked pretty big. So I was like, if you want one, go for it. And he was like, I'm fine. I'm like, all right, great. Yeah. He didn't even pick a fry. I didn't get any fries. It was four tenders. That's it. Uh, oh, okay. Sorry. Yeah, I, that's four a, tenders. That's blasphemous. Place. You gotta just you, you gotta have fries with your tendies. Yeah. I mean, it is not ridiculous. that the fries at a movie theater would be good, but. No, that's also true. But you're right. I mean, three-hour movie. The other thing, too, is I kept thinking I should get some water, but he was smart. Smart. Lem was like, no, dude, are you kidding? With our bladders, I'm like, that's true. You can't drink anything. A three-hour movie? And yeah. I saw a couple people going to the bathroom. I go, you could miss something critical in this movie. That, I mean, that would be the biggest thing if I was you. I would say, three hours. Like, is it long? And I'm like, it's long, but I didn't feel it was unevenly paced. I actually thought it was well-paced. Again, that score helps. It wasn't like long speeches. It, it's, it's a very talky movie, but that that music is pounding at you, you know, especially that IMAX screen. I mean, I... I thought it was an immersive experience. And again, many people have seen it twice already. I don't have the time to go see it twice in movies, to be honest. I'll probably wait till I see it on streaming again. Because then you can kind of go through it a little more, read more about it. But I, honestly, I think it was a hell of a movie. Four Maple Leafs for Oppenheimer. Clearly one of the best pictures of the year and a very rewarding experience. Barbie, two and a half Maple Leafs. Those are our two new movies. No old movies. Let's get to the golden boy, Oscar De La Hoya. Well, it's a real pleasure bringing in one of the greatest boxers ever. His name is Oscar De La Hoya, and this new documentary is fantastic. It's called The Golden Boy. It airs tonight on HBO. Part 2 airs tomorrow. And, of course, it's also available for streaming on Max. As a lifelong boxing fan, I've always been a fan of this guy. And this documentary is terrific because he really shows a side of himself he's never shown before. Oscar, it's great to see you, man. How are you doing? Thank you. I'm doing great, man. It's good to be here. So I'm watching the doc and I said, you know, it's such an amazing story, especially out of the gate. And you're going up in East L.A. As you said, you're running up five in the morning. And it's crazy to think about. Again, I, I can't understand it unless you're there. You're like, there's still gangs who are still up. There's still people partying. And there you are running. And you just got no choice. Your dad's banging on the door like, hey, we're going to run. We're going to do this. So you already sure. as a kid had this toughness about you, that focus. And then, you know, there's a great story you tell about being class saying, you know, my goal one day is being an Olympic champion. And it's one thing for the class to laugh, but the teacher laughs as well. And like that that memory stuck in your memory. It made me think childhood memories can really have an impact on you. What was that like being a moment like that where you're vulnerable saying, I'm going to be a boxing champion, gold medal winner, and the teacher's the mm -hmm. one laughing at you? 
<laughs> yeah, I remember that. It was uh, like it was yesterday. I I was what six, seven, eight years old. It's literally shattering your dreams. Uh, you you feel like your world is is it's it's gonna crumble right in front of your eyes. At that age, what what do you do? I mean, the only thing to do is maybe go to your parents and 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 tell them about it. But in my era. We couldn't do that. Um, I couldn't do that. I didn't have really that relationship with my parents, with my mom, with my father. My father was always working. And anytime I would see him, um, it was because of the boxing gym. He would take me to the boxing gym. And that's that was our relationship. But the boxing, I was outlet. But boxing was my 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 escape, my outlet, my everything that happened in my life, uh, whether it was tragic or, or good boxing inside the ring was my escape. I, I loved getting in the ring and just disappearing from the world, basically. Your mother's death obviously had a huge impact on you. I'm lucky enough my parents are still around. I can't imagine how hard that must be, especially on a kid. And, you know, there's a great uh, interview with Jay Leno, actually. He has you on the Tonight Show, and he's like, he goes, you know, Oscar was was genuine. He was sincere. And, and his story was great because because his mother's passing, the fact he's still won the Olympic gold, like he goes, it, it gave him a, a genuine aspect of his personality and that he was vulnerable but also pretty tough I, mm. I know it's hard to talk about but just what was that experience like you know he had this i don't make it too dramatic but like a dying wish to your mother and you're able to fulfill it. yeah well that's 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 the beauty of this uh of this documentary is that it all happened so fast i was only 18 years old and and the media um was already putting so much pressure on me my mother had passed away and I had made the Olympic team. So I remember somebody asking me, you know, are you you're doing this for your mother? This is your mom's dying wish. And I went with it. It was like and then and, and it just caught fire and it blew up. And so now the media is convincing me that I'm doing it for my mother, that I'm it's her dying wish. Right. And and being being a young shy kid from East LA that you know with all this media attention and it's like I I had to go with it I couldn't it's like I was lying but I couldn't lie you know it, <laughs> it, it was just, it's just crazy and um so so the whole story in the Olympics was Oscar doing it for his you know his dying mother's wish you know winning the gold and so this documentary just uh, you know tells you the truth of what really happened. Yeah, the personal side of it is, is really fascinating. But as a boxer, man, listen, I, I have such respect for your titles in 10 different weight classes. Like You had just an unbelievable yeah. run. Do you have a favorite fight of yours? You go back and go, man, I, I still can't believe what I was able to accomplish. Every single fight, every single time I stepped inside the ring, I just, you know, it's I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe what I was what I was doing. When I would step inside the ring, I would turn into this different person. You know, this person that had anger, this person that, that was so suppressed from from love from you know that hug from your mom um you know those encouraging words from your father you know the ring to me was like a way for me to just let out all that frustration all that anger and so every single fight was very important i mean every single fight i went up there thinking that i had to win thinking that i must win you know the pressure from the world um yeah it was pretty intense but I wouldn't change one thing about it. My career, I, I'm blessed and I'm happy for it. It certainly was an incredible career, but of course it comes with the downsides as, as again, the documentary. Yeah. The biggest thing is like, you know, you're, you're willing to show that vulnerability. And you started out by saying, mm -hmm. listen, I, I've hidden this side, okay? Like I've, I've, I've kept it away from people, but I'm just, this is the moment now. I just want to tell people the truth. What was it about now in your life? Listen, you're still incredibly successful as a boxer, yeah. as a promoter, friends, family, et cetera. 
But you, what was it that you go? You know what, man? I just want to tell my story now. I just want to. I just want to clean the slate now. Well, look, I've been, I've been living, I've been living in this world uh, as the golden boy for since 1992. You know, 30 plus years, and uh, it's, it hasn't been easy. This is my life, and this is my character and who I am. And you know, I, I, I'm very friendly with people, and I get along with everybody, and I'm. I try to make things right with anything that, you know, crosses my path, whatever it might be. But when you're wanting to tell the truth of how you feel inside, because everybody has their own perspective, mm-hmm. everybody has their own opinion of who you are. And, 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 and I go with it and, you know, and I, and I put on that smile and it's, you know, and life is great, <laughs> but to tell the truth in this documentary of how I really feel and what really happened it's just liberating for me. It's kind of like it's it, it was a big old therapy session for me. You know, it's like, wow, OK, you know, this life that I lived. I mean, a lot of I must have been under depression maybe 10 times over. I must have, you know, uh, mental health. I must have been, you know, all screwed up in the head many times over. But thank God for the boxing ring. Thank God for that squared circle that literally saved my life, because like I said, that was my escape. That's where I felt free and safe. It's funny you mentioned that therapy angle because I was kind of thinking the same thing. I said, you know, if a therapist was analyzing it, they'd say, okay, cocaine, alcohol, sex. And you're using all of these because you're under, as you said, depression, anxiety. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's almost like now, I feel like if your career was now, maybe we'd have more awareness of mental health. You'd be able to navigate things a little bit better and go, you know what, I, I need some help sure. with issues, right? Whereas yep. in that time, it, I'm not making an excuse for it, but I think it was harder for you because you didn't you didn't have these options and all this stuff's available to you. Like nobody can appreciate how hard right. it is to be Oscar De La Hoya yeah. and people are giving you things left and right. That's tough to turn down. Well, you know, it's 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 it was hard to talk about back then. I mean, I, I was thinking about this the other day. If If I were to say... Well, you know, I don't feel good today because of mental health, or I, I, I'm not, I'm gonna cancel a fight. I would be ridiculed right. back then. I would be, you know, laughed upon. I, I, I mean, I would, my career would be over. And so you had to hold it in. And so all that, it's, it's. I was like a volcano. I mean, when I, when I retired from boxing and I had more time on my hands because i didn't i didn't drink or i didn't do anything do drugs or or you know all that stuff. i was i was a, an athlete i was on it that's why i was successful but when i retired it's like everything was just handed to me and the the world like opened up and i was like you know what I, i'm gonna rebel i'm gonna i'm gonna do what i want to do now I'm, what i think i should do now what i think makes me happy mm-hmm. and yeah you you get into the bad stuff you get into the women the drugs the the, the alcohol this that but the fact that I survived it for that many years and stay clean and be an athlete and a world champion for all those years, it's pretty remarkable. I, I kind of have to pat myself on the back because I could have folded any time right. with all the pressure. But um, And this is what the story tells you. It, it just tells you the truth. Yeah. And this is what I wanted to, to, to get across is the authenticity, the realness, the, the, the rawness of this documentary is like no other. Yeah, and I think that's that's one of the other lessons of this too. And for yourself, it's kind of therapeutic to get this out and kind of have a clean slate. I think for people who are fans of yours to appreciate how great you were, but also for people out there struggling with addiction, with problems, yeah. what would you say is advice you could give? I mean, I know there's you know one day at a time and try to find different things, but what would you say, yeah. having been through it, what's the best way you can overcome yeah. whatever problems? 
Look, I mean, I, it's it, and it's it, it goes beyond like you know drinking and and drugs and women and this and that, you know, relationships with your parents, with your family, with your kids. You know, the the one thing I can really say is, uh, you know, going through all this experience is is literally do not forget about yourself. You have to put yourself first. And and what I did throughout my life and my career is that you know I, I put myself last i put myself second i always wanted to be the people pleaser i always wanted to you know say yes and and yes you can you know it's like i had to be that nice person because you know the media labeled me as the golden boy and yeah. he's nice and he doesn't he never turns down an autograph and a picture and this and that so i think the most important message i can i can give to anybody is uh yeah put yourself first Last one for you. Again, The Golden Boy on HBO, available for streaming as well. The Golden Boy is a great nickname because you are handsome, you are articulate, you are charming. So it, it, it totally fit. But as you say in the doc, it was very harmful in some ways too. It, it, do, you, do you regret the nickname now? Like if someone sees you goes, hey, Golden Boy, do you kind of wince and go, I wish they didn't call me that? Or do you just embrace it now? I embrace it. It was part of my life. Look, everything, everything happens for a reason, whether it's good or bad. And, um, you know, I, I obviously I, I, I've ruled with the punches for many years. And um, now that I set myself free from all those lies, from all that manipulation, from, you know, all those, you know, tragic events and, you know, what I went through. And again, thank God that I survived because not many people survive. And so I'm, I'm just blessed. And, um, you know, the golden boy will live on forever. <laughs> I'm grateful for it. Uh, you know, I mean, the, uh, although I, I do feel like a man now, um, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a nickname that's going to live forever, and I'm, I'm pretty blessed. The golden boy becomes the golden man. We can check out the golden boy documentary <laughs> on HBO. Oscar, seriously, I'm a big fan, man, and I, I give you a lot you, of credit for doing this, and I really appreciate the time. Yeah. All the best. Appreciate you, man. Thank you. All right, thanks once again to Oscar. Great guy, forever the golden boy. Check out that documentary on HBO and on Max. Thanks as always to Chris Cody, the entire team here at Metal Arc as supporting Cinephile. Next week, I'm watching, thank God, my sister-in-law hooked me up Paramount Plus so then you can watch Showtime. So I'm watching George and Tammy, my man Michael Shannon, Jessica Chastain. I'm getting my country music on. Six episodes. It's nominated for the Emmys. Chastain's up for Best Actress. Shannon's up for Best Actor. So it's fantastic so far. I'll have my review next week. All six episodes. The Emmy Awards are coming up in September. Not that I want to be updating the actress strike every week, but someone did mention to me what could happen to the Emmys. I'm like, well, quite frankly, they will not happen. So unless the strike gets up, I can't imagine actors wanting to go receive awards which they feel are benefiting fitting companies right now that they're at war with so it's a giant mess let's hope they get this sorted out let's hope the actor strike and the writer strike get solved sooner rather than later and for now we'll just keep pumping out the content i'll see you at the movies